And I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word gentle. Uh, maybe it is soft. Maybe it's something that is cuddly, something that is weak. Gentleness is not a virtue that we often think about. And it's certainly not one that we pray, God, would you make me gentle? Seriously, think about that. When was the last time that you prayed, God, make me gentle. We don't often pray that prayer. As a matter of fact, uh, in our culture, and maybe even more so as we think about men, we're, we're often pushed in the opposite direction. And uh, instead of being gentle, we want to be macho. Uh, we want to be tough. But here in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, nearing the end of our list, we're almost there, uh, we find gentleness a call to be gentle. I do realize that in some translations, it's the word meekness. And uh, that idea of meekness falls under the category of gentleness. Uh, to be gentle, this particular word that we find in the New Testament can mean humble and courteous, considerate, mild, and meek. Uh, we'll try to distinguish a little bit between these ideas, but I want to start with uh, a quote by Billy Graham. I don't often get to quote him, but he defines gentleness this way. Gentleness is mildness in dealing with others. It displays a sensitive regard for others and is careful never to be unfeeling for the rights of others. Gentleness is an active trait describing the manner in which we actively treat another person. We are treating them with gentleness. Meekness, on the other hand, is a passive trait describing uh, the proper Christian response when others mistreat us. A great example of meekness is Moses. Moses is called the meekest man by even the Lord himself because when he was mistreated by others, think of the books of Exodus and Numbers, when they would rise against him and say, you brought us out here to die, even his own brother Aaron, the high priest, and his sister Miriam would rise up and speak against Moses. How did he respond? He responded with passivity. He didn't engage them. He was meek in his approach. Gentleness is best illustrated by the way we would handle a carton of exquisite crystal glasses. We, we treat them gentle. We recognize they're fragile. It's a recognition that human personality is valuable. Every human personality is valuable, but also fragile and therefore must be handled with great care. Another way we could define gentleness would be this. It's stooping down to help someone. And it's the manner in which we stoop down to help them as well. God continually stoops down to help us. And he wants us to do the same, to be sensitive to the rights, to the feelings of others. In 1 Kings 19, we find an incredible story it falls obviously on the hills of 1 Corinthians 18 where uh, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, Elijah calls out the prophets of Baal. 
and they meet together on Mount Carmel. And there on Mount Carmel, they both are preparing their sacrifices and it's Elijah, the one prophet for Yahweh and 900 prophets for Baal. And it's a showdown to see whose God is real. And obviously Yahweh comes through and consumes that sacrifice and thus begins this process of eliminating all of these prophets of Baal. It's a big day for Elijah. But as soon as he's done, what happens is Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, the queen, says, you're going to be dead by the morning. So what does Elijah do? On the heels of this incredible victory, he runs away. He heads south. He goes as far south in Israel as he can go uh, to Beersheba. And, and then a little bit further south into the wilderness, and he sits under a broom tree, and he says, I'm going to go to sleep now, God, and I don't want to wake up. I want to be dead. So what does Yahweh do? The next morning, Elijah is nudged awake by an angel. And there's a cake that's been baked on a stone. And there's water for Elijah to drink. Yahweh himself has stooped down to gently care for Elijah. Elijah goes back to sleep. <laughs> He's still not quite ready. And so what happens? He's nudged awake the next day. And there's another cake. And there's some more water. God, for two days in a row, has now stooped down to care for Elijah gently. After that, Elijah heads further south to Mount Horeb. Many believe this is the same mountain or same area of the mountain where Moses received the law of God, Mount Sinai. And he hides in a cave and God brings a great wind that even breaks the rocks on the mountain. And God uh, brings an earthquake and fire. All of these mighty things. But do you remember how God actually speaks to Elijah? In a still, small, dare I say gentle voice. And he says, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not alone. There are others. And he sends him from there to find Elisha, who would be his successor. God stooping down. In Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah have been promised that they'll have a child, but he hasn't come yet. And so Sarah decides, let's do something different. And so she sends Abraham into her handmaiden, Hagar, and he goes in. And as a result, now Hagar is pregnant. And the dynamics of the home change. Sarah becomes jealous. Hagar seems now to have some sort of a authority over her because she's pregnant and Sarah is not. And so Abraham says, she's your handmaid, do whatever you want with her. And so they send this poor, sexually abused servant slave out into the wilderness, newly pregnant, probably to die. She finds her way to a well. And in Genesis 16, in verse 7, it says, 
the angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord being a reference to what we would understand as the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity before Jesus would put on flesh in the Old Testament. He appeared in multiple locations and the second person of the Trinity personally goes to meet Hagar. And he promises her, you're gonna be okay. Your child is gonna be okay. In fact, I'm gonna make of your child Ishmael a great nation and a great people. You know how Hagar responds to that? She names this, and we see this throughout the Old Testament that people will give a particular name to God in a particular location. Here's what she says. You are the God who sees me. God himself comes gently to Hagar. He sees her. She says in verse 13, truly here, I have seen the one who looks after me. I don't know what kind of a week you've had. And I don't know what kind of fights you've had in your home. I don't know what kind of uh, things you've had to work through at work and maybe accidents that have happened this week on ice. I don't know what it is, but I want you to know there is a God who is gentle and he sees you. Psalm 23 describes him as a gentle shepherd. He leads us into the fields. He restores our soul. Isaiah 40, 11 says he'll tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather lambs into his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Psalm 103, 13 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust and he treats us gently as a result. So does this mean that God is weak? Does this mean that God is somehow timid or that God is cowardly because he is gentle? Absolutely not. He is the omnipotent, all-powerful God who can cause earthquakes and fires and speak through giant storms, but he is also gentle. And he speaks in a still small voice. Jesus describes himself as gentle as well as we move into the pages of the New Testament. It was just this last fall, Aaron actually walked us through this particular passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus gives this encouraging invitation and says, come to me, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and I am humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what this ultimately means is that people, thinking about Jesus here on earth, people could rest in the presence of Jesus. They could rest in the presence of Jesus. Tax collectors who everybody else hated could rest in the presence of Jesus. Prostitutes who were deemed the worst of sinners could rest in the presence of Jesus. And you see that. We read of that in the pages of the New Testament. They were at ease in his presence. 
Compare that to the, the Pharisees. They were not at ease in the presence of the Pharisees. They were harsh and critical and judgmental. And you couldn't rest in their presence. In Matthew 12, 20, another verse we looked at this last fall, Jesus is described there as the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 in a prophecy that's given that says this, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That bruised reed, that smoldering wick refer to people who are hurting, people who are spiritually weak, people who have little faith and Jesus deals gently with those people. Think of the woman at the well in John 4. He deals gently with her as he helps her understand. Think of Nicodemus, John 3. He deals gently with Nicodemus, a learned Pharisee, in trying to help him understand what eternal life really means. The Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, his own arrest, his uh, trial, the betrayal, uh, his crucifixion, through all of that, he deals gently with the people who are physically abusing him in those moments. Even on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. John 21 he meets Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he takes him aside. He doesn't do this in front of the rest of the group. He takes Peter aside and they're on a little walk and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. A few more steps. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then one more time. Peter, do you love me? Three questions to follow the three statements of betrayal that Peter had pronounced some days earlier. Jesus gently restores Peter and invites him to, to be a leader in the coming church. The gentleness of Jesus. And so if gentleness describes God, if gentleness describes Christ, then Shouldn't it describe us too? Once again, we have to realize that gentleness is not a natural disposition. It's true that some people are maybe more inclined to gentleness than others. But primarily, it is a fruit of the Spirit that's to be cultivated by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Gentleness is not a, a some people have it and, and some people don't kind of quality for life. It's something that every follower of Jesus must diligently work to cultivate in their lives. Some would say, gentleness is just not my nature. And Jesus would say, well, get a new nature. <laughs> Let my spirit work through you. I am here and I have come to make you a new creation. Remember Colossians 3.12, a, a verse that's really echoed a lot of what we find in Galatians 5. Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Paul encourages Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11 
He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, which he's mentioned in the previous verses, and instead pursue, chase after with diligence, righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Pursue this with your life. So what does living gently look like then? Well, this is where Jerry Bridges is gonna help us with some bullet points again this week. The fruit of gentleness means first that we are actively seeking to make others feel at ease or restful in our presence. I'm gonna repeat that again. Actively seeking to make others feel at ease or restful in our presence. We should not be so strongly opinionated or dogmatic that others are afraid to express their opinions in our presence. What kind of opinions? Any kind of opinions, doctrinal opinions, uh, political opinions, social opinions, whatever they may be, we must help people feel at ease. Instead, we should be sensitive to others' opinions and ideas. We should also avoid displaying our commitment to Christian discipleship in such a way as to make others feel guilty. Taking care not to break a bruised reed or a hurting Christian or snuff out the smoldering wick of an immature Christian. Some of us are far too opinionated, or maybe it would be better to say that we think far too much of our own opinions. So much so that, that people avoid talking to us. They avoid being around us. We're, we're repelling people that we're called to draw in. We're to be a city that's set on a hill. We're to reflect the light of Christ. People were drawn to Jesus. They found rest and ease with Jesus. Aggressive, abrasive, argumentative. Those are not qualities that are derived from gentleness. Those are the opposite of what we're dealing with here. People, uh, sinners, were comfortable being around Jesus even when he was rebuking them. Isn't that a strange phenomenon you see in the New Testament? He rebuked with gentleness. So the big question is this. Are people comfortable being around you? Are people at ease and safe in your presence? What do you do to make them feel at ease? What do you do to make them feel safe in your presence? And you may say, you don't know the kind of people I have to work with. And that may be true. But I know some rough people. I know I've been a pastor for a long time. But one of my first jobs out of high school was working for a drilling company in Oklahoma. And you talk about rough people. I don't think they make them more rough than some of those guys who leave for three weeks at a time and they're out away from their family. There's alcohol, there's drugs, there's whatever they want to do. Sometimes while they're on the clock, sometimes where they're not. And I'm so thankful as I reflected on this this morning, I'm thankful for my dad who, who worked in that environment and who I got to work with in that environment for some time in high school who exemplified an example of Jesus he didn't engage in all of their conversation. He didn't engage in their lifestyle. He just stood as a light. 
He was there to reflect Jesus. Even the name of his oil company after he had come to Christ and, and returned and repented was Maranatha Oil, uh, taken from the pages of the New Testament. Maranatha meaning, come Lord Jesus. And so I was able to work with these guys and not getting cussing with them. I didn't judge them for what they did. But you know what happens over time? As you just simply respond with gentleness, they feel at ease around you. And they begin to ask questions. You really believe that? Does the Bible really say that? And they started not having certain conversations around me and not saying certain words and apologizing for those things, not as if I'm the moral police who's telling them, you can't say that, you can't say that. No. It's just being gentle. Being gentle. Help people feel at ease around you. Gentleness will demonstrate respect for the personal dignity of another person. Gentleness demonstrates respect for the personal dignity of another person. Guys, that's what it means to be pro-life. It's respect for the dignity of every human person. It doesn't mean that we have to pretend that others and their opinions are always right. Certainly that would not be the case. But where necessary, it seeks to change a wrong opinion. It seeks to change a wrong attitude by persuasion and kindness, not domination, intimidation, or manipulation. It will studiously avoid coercion and threatening. There's a great verse in 1 Peter 3 that we often quote as we're thinking about arguing our faith, defending our faith. In this verse, it says that if anyone asks of you the reason for your hope, be ready to, to make a defense for that. And we like that verse. Be ready to defend when somebody says, why do you believe that? But there's, a, there's one more clause at the end of that verse that quite honestly, I don't know that I've ever noticed. So it says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Guys, people are going to disagree with you. People are going to disagree with us. We still stand on what the Bible teaches in relation to homosexuality being wrong, immoral. Seems cultures pretty much moved beyond that. Now we're in the phase of transgenderism. And we stand to recognize that God has created man and God has created woman. We also recognize that sin convolutes the minds and the hearts of people and confuses them. We get that. We stand there. And, and as a result of that particular truth, people are going to disagree with us, right? The vast majority of our own culture disagrees with us on those particular issues, even present day. They may yell at us, they may accuse us, they may belittle us, they may call us names, but we must treat them, even if they're yelling in our face, with respect and dignity. Why? Because no matter how much sin has confused them, they're still created in the image of God. And their life has just as much value as your life and as the lives of the people who are around you. And we're called to respond with gentleness. 
The third thing is this, gentleness also avoids blunt speech in abrupt manner. Instead of seeking to answer everyone, it's, instead it seeks to answer everyone with sensitivity and respect. It's ready to show consideration to all. Bridges writes this, he says, general Christians do not feel they have the liberty to say what I think and let the chips fall where they may. Instead, they're sensitive to the reactions of others, to their words. They're considerate of how others may feel about what they said. When gentle Christians find it necessary to wound with words, they also seek to bind those wounds with words of consolation and encouragement. Some of you were raised in an environment where blunt speech, abusive, hurtful words were common. And I, I am very sorry for that. I'm sorry for you. That's not what Christ intends. And that's not what Christ has taught you, is it? As one who the Spirit indwells, you are obligated to be sensitive in what you say to other people. Just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. And we should probably question most of the time whether we should even be thinking what we're about to say. And just because it's true doesn't mean that it needs to be spoken at that particular moment, in that particular time. There's a proper time to speak those things and to speak truth into people's lives. This goes for online as well. It's not just what we say to people face to face. It's what we post. It's what we encourage others with. Four, gentle Christians will not feel threatened by opposition. or resent those who oppose them. We will not be threatened by opposition and resent those who oppose us. You know, the verse that just popped in my mind is Christ saying, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will do the work. He will accomplish the goal in the end. Gentle Christians will seek to gently instruct and look for God to dissolve opposition. We shouldn't be threatened when others have different political views than us, when others have different doctrinal views than us. We shouldn't feel threatened when others have different opinions about the way we should build a building or the way we should live our life. The truth is, at least from what I have observed, for far too long, many Christians have sealed themselves up in their own silos. And in doing so, we've refused to listen to the opinions, to the arguments of others. We've refused to engage in the world around us. And that tactic is not of the Spirit. It's born out of fear. One of the things I've tried to personally do over the last couple of years is follow people on Twitter that I completely disagree with on a lot of issues. And sometimes I read their post and it's infuriating to me. How can you say what you're saying? But in those moments, I learn a lot about them. I learn a lot about how sin deceives people. 
I learn a lot about people's background and what's brought them to that particular conclusion in life. And I also learn a lot about me. Christians, we have to listen. The words that we have, have spoken multiple times over the last few months are, are, are that we have to listen, we have to look so that we can learn, so that we can love. And we can't wall ourselves up and close the world out. We have to listen to what is happening and engage them. Don't be threatened by their opposition. Don't be threatened by their different opinions on things. Five, gentle Christians will not degrade or belittle. They won't gossip about a brother or sister who falls into sin. Instead, they'll grieve for him, her, pray for that person's repentance, and if appropriate, become personally involved in trying to help that person learn to stand again. We're gonna be looking at an incredible text in Galatians 6, verse one, in just a few weeks that's gonna lend itself to this final point. So how do we cultivate this kind of gentleness? If you're anything like me, these points are quite convicting. So how do we grow? First of all, we have to decide that this is a trait, this is a quality that we actually want to develop. I want to be gentle like Jesus is gentle. We have to decide that, that we want to be mild and sensitive as we deal with others, that we're willing to live without maybe the rigid structures of black and white. We have to decide if we really want to care about people. We have to love others as Christ loves them and us. The question is, do we truly want to follow him? Can I, can I just jump back to that point? I grew up in a world where it was black and white. It's this and it's that. And I get that and that's simple and that's easy. That's the world Jesus was born into as well. It was black and white. You only do this and you don't do that. But do you remember how Jesus came and, and truly disrupted that? He healed people on the Sabbath. That's not black and white, that's gray. His disciples didn't even wash their hands. It's great. We have to be more like Christ. Do we really want to follow him? Two, we have to ask people who know us best and who will be honest with us how we come across to other people. Do I come across as gentle? Am I sensitive to the needs of others? Bridges encourages us to ask these particular questions. Are we dogmatic and opinionated, blunt and abrupt? Do we seek to intimidate and dominate others by sheer force of our own personality? Do people feel ill at ease in our presence because they think we're silently judging their weaknesses and correcting their faults? If any of these traits are characteristic of us, then we need to face them humbly and we need to face them honestly. Many of us need to grow in the discipline of keeping our mouth shut. And many of us need to grow in the discipline 
of walking in other people's shoes. I hope you understand what I mean by that. That's the idea of learning. Learning why other people think the way they think. Who raised them? What brought them to this conclusion? What event happened in their life? We've got to learn what it is to place ourselves in the shoes of other people so that we can truly engage them, so that we can truly know them, so that we can truly love them. Think of that woman at the well. Goodness sakes. She was at the well at noon because nobody cared for her. She was an outcast completely. Everybody had written her off, but what did Jesus do? He steps into her shoes. Literally on the cross. But he enters into her world and he gains understanding of the tragedy that was her life that has brought her to this point of shame where she's at a well at noon. He enters into her world with sympathy, with empathy. Number three, and I know this sounds academic, but we have to memorize and meditate on passages of Scripture that address our shortcomings. <laughs> and I've given you a pretty lengthy list of passages that you can look at in relation to our shortcomings in gentleness. Responding in gentleness is easier for us when we remember our own sin, our own failure, our own shortcomings. When we remember that there's a giant log in our eye before we begin to mess with the dust in their eye, we're remembering what? That God is treating me right now as he has always treated me with gentleness. He's the God who stooped down into my life and he's calling me to stoop down now into the lives of others. Four, pray for the Holy Spirit to demonstrate this fruit in your life. You're not gonna conjure it up on your own. Some of you have tried. Some of you have had this disposition in your life and you've tried to do things and manipulate things to be more gentle, but you haven't prayed as you should pray. Please don't take this point lightly. You might be thinking, this is who I am. I can't change this. My dad was like this. My mom was like this. It's in my genetics to be like this. And you're right, you cannot change this, but he can and wants to change this in you. Jesus came so that we could be gentle. The spirit resides in us so that we can be gentle and loving and faithful and kind and all the other fruit that we've talked about. It's the reason he came so that we might show gentleness. So what do we need to do? We need to repent. We need to submit ourselves to him. We need to discipline ourselves. Some of you today need to pray that prayer and say, God, I have not been gentle. I have been harsh. I have hurt other people. Change me. Some of you need to go to other people Maybe it's a spouse. 
Maybe it's a fellow church member, maybe it's a neighbor, and you need to ask them to forgive you because you have not been gentle with them. You have been harsh with them. You have hurt them. You have abused them. And you need to ask for their forgiveness. And then we all need to submit ourselves to the truth of God's word and say, I want to live out every day to be gentle, to be gentle to the sinners who are around me, to the society who's around me, to be gentle to the the people that are a part of my church family, to be gentle uh, to the people that are a part of my immediate family, the people that live in my home, my, my husband, my wife, my kids. Another great verse that came into my mind this morning is when Peter uh, is instructing and says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, recognizing that she is the weaker vessel. You must treat her with greater gentleness like fine crystal care for her God help us to be defined by gentleness can you imagine how we would stand out in this culture that has come to just simply accept harshness judgment criticism what a light we could be if we just let the Spirit work through us. Incredible opportunity that sits in front of each one of us. Would you bow with me today? I'm not going to talk here. I want you to talk. I want you to spend some time right now just praying whatever prayer you need to pray in this particular moment. And uh, I will close us out in just a moment, but I'll give you some time. Father, I'm grateful that even in this moment, there is a gentle, still, small voice that is no doubt laying some conviction on our hearts. I know it is mine. stooping down to encourage us to continue on. To submit to the Spirit. To change from our wrong way of thinking and living. Even now, God, you treat us gently. Please help us to treat others gently. Help us to be that light that you've called us to be. Spirit, I pray that that when we cross that line, that you will convict us and prod us to repentance. No doubt, today I will cross that line again and others will as well. And I pray that in those moments, you will freshly convict us and help us to respond in gentleness. Thank you that we have such an example. In you, God, in you, Jesus, 
and even in you, Spirit, as you work in us even now. We give you all the praise. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.